0: The Art of Being Human presents podcast on the work of Baron Katie. This episode is part of the How to Do the Work series, offering specific instructions on how to develop and improve your own practice of the work. This is session two, The Four Questions with Ernest Holmes-Svenson. For more podcasts on the work of Baron Katie, go to www.theartofbeinghuman.com DK/podcasts. And now, session 2. The four questions. Hello. My name is Ernest. And in this the second episode of the How to Do the Work series, we will follow up on your worksheet and begin looking at the second part of the process, asking the four questions. In the previous episode, I invited you to fill out a judge-your-neighbor worksheet. In this episode, I assume you've done that, and that you have it nearby for reference. I know from my own experience that sometimes we want to just skip ahead and keep moving forward to collect as much knowledge as possible. But this series is not about knowing. It's about doing. And in this case, if you haven't filled out a worksheet, you will almost certainly miss a number of important nuances in what I say, and you will most likely forget part of the instructions because you have nothing to tie them to. So if you haven't filled out a worksheet yet, I invite you to pause now and either fill it out on your own or take advantage of the bonus episode I've posted where I guide you through the process. You can find the worksheet on the resources page at my website and either print it out or simply use it for reference and write your answers somewhere convenient. And then, once you're done, return to this episode. All right. As I said, from here on, I'm assuming you have a filled-out judge-your-neighbor worksheet or, sharing a little insider jargon here, a JYN ready at hand. And how did it feel to fill it out? People's reactions differ. Some like the process of getting all of the thoughts that are disturbing them down on paper. Others find it slightly unpleasant to discover what those thoughts were. But most are surprised by how powerfully their emotional response washes back over them when they write. That's perfectly natural, however, because, as we've covered in the earlier episodes, our bodies and our emotions react to what's going on in our simulator. So it's a good sign if your emotions were reawoken, because it means that you were genuinely present in the situation as you filled out the worksheet. I will comment further on the worksheets in a later episode. For now, it's enough to know that there's no wrong way to fill it out and that the best way to make it more effective is through working with the content. So let's do that. The worksheet is a means of gathering together our beliefs in a specific moment into a simple form, leaving us with a series of so-called one-liners, which we can then question one by one. Under point two on the worksheet, your wants, you could imagine having written the following. I want Peter to listen to me, to ask me when he's not sure of something, to take responsibility, and to judge whether the time frame is realistic. Here are four one-liners. Let me read them to you again. I want Peter to listen to me, to ask me when he's not sure of something, to take responsibility, and to judge whether the time frame is realistic. The four one-liners are, I want Peter to listen to me, I want Peter to ask me when he's not sure of something, I want Peter to take responsibility, I want Peter to judge whether the time frame is realistic. Notice how, even if they are not necessarily written like this, every single sentence under point 2 begins with, I want Peter to. The one-liner isn't just, to take responsibility. It is, I want Peter to take responsibility. And the same is true for the other points. In point 3, for example, your shoulds, imagine you have written the following. Peter should realize that his contribution is important He should invest himself, pay attention during the meeting, think things through. How many one-liners do you hear? I'll read it again. Peter should realize that his contribution is important. He should invest himself, pay attention during the meeting, think things through. Again, there are four one-liners. And when we work with them, we make sure to complete the sentences by adding the initial Peter should in the beginning of each. Peter should realize that his contribution is important. Peter should invest himself. Peter should pay attention during the meeting. Peter should think things through. The same goes for the rest of the points. In point four, the needs, you add, I need Peter too in the beginning of each one-liner. I need Peter to stay focused and speak his mind becomes... I need Peter to stay focused, I need Peter to speak his mind. And in point 5, Peter is frivolous, irresponsible, irritating, superficial and demanding, becomes Peter is frivolous, Peter is irresponsible, Peter is irritating, Peter is superficial, Peter is demanding. The goal in formulating the one-liners Is to create short simple sentences with a clear structure. I want John to clear things with me when he is in a situation that is politically sensitive and may lead to trouble later on is a very long sentence. But actually the core element is quite straightforward. Let me read it to you again so you can try to identify the simple one-liner at its core. I want John to clear things with me when he is in a situation that is politically sensitive and may lead to trouble later on. The one-liner here is, I want John to clear things with me. All the rest, about the politically sensitive situation, we can simply hold as a backdrop, knowing that this is the situation we are pointing to as we work the one-liner. Similarly, I want Sarah to ask me, even if everyone else says that they're sure it'll be okay, can be boiled down to, I want Sarah to ask me. And again, Steve shouldn't think that just because he has more experience than the rest of us, he's the only one who knows how to do it. Becomes, Steve shouldn't think he's the only one who knows how to do it. Short, simple sentences with a clear structure that are easy to hold in our minds. We do the same with the one-liner in point one on the worksheet by removing the first part of the sentence about our emotions. If the sentence is, I am angry with John because he doesn't focus on his tasks, the one-liner is, John doesn't focus on his tasks. In the same way, I'm hurt by Jenny because she's mean to me becomes simply, Jenny is mean to me. Short, simple sentences that focus on the operational elements, leaving out the background, explanation, and justification. So, what you need to remember when you're working on a judge-your-neighbor worksheet is the following. Find a concrete situation, ideally a specific moment in that situation, to work on. Be mentally and emotionally present in the situation when you fill out the worksheet. And be honest. Let yourself write directly from your experience without censoring yourself. When you begin to work with the one-liners, use short, simple sentences. Leave out the part with the emotion in point one. Remember to include the start of the one-liner each time under point two to six. I want, he should, I need, he is, I don't ever want. And remember that sometimes a single sentence can contain several one-liners. Caroline should take her time and concentrate is two one-liners. Once you've had a bit more practice working with the four questions and the turnarounds, these guidelines will start to seem obvious. They are self-evident, really, because if the sentences are too complex, they also get harder to work with. As with everything else about the work, remember that you can't do it wrong. Quite the opposite. The more you experiment, the clearer it'll be what works and what doesn't. It's all about gaining experience, which hones your understanding so that you find it even easier to do next time round. The number of one-liners people write on the worksheets varies. Sometimes there are only a couple of them for each point. Other times there are quite a lot. The important thing is to remain present in the situation and write down the stressful thoughts that cross your mind there. Just like working with the questions and the turnarounds, filling out the worksheet is a meditation. The best way to help yourself is to become still, let yourself be immersed in what you're doing and open your mind to whatever appears. With the worksheet in place, You are now ready to begin the next stage of the process using the four questions to begin your inquiry. Just as when you filled out the worksheet, be present in the situation in your inner simulator. Take the time to bring yourself back to the moment you want to work on. Where are you? What do your surroundings look like? Who are with you? What sounds do you hear? Do you smell anything? Bring yourself completely back to the experience, only beginning to answer the questions when you're there once more. There are four questions, and you can find them in the bottom left corner of the worksheet. They go like this. One, is it true? Two, can you absolutely know that it's true? 3. How do you react? What happens when you believe that thought? 4. Who would you be without the thought? What's important is that you find the answers in the situation. This isn't something you can think or analyze your way to. It isn't something you guess or assume. It's something you experience. It's something you observe in yourself by taking things slowly and reliving the moment, investigating all the little corners of your reaction that you didn't notice the first time around because it all went so quickly. Let's revisit my experience from the video store. I'm standing behind the counter sorting videos when my boss walks by. I look up and see an expression on his face that I interpret as disapproval. The specific moment I'm working with is just as I see his expression. My one-liner is, he doesn't think I'm doing my job well enough. And so, I ask the first question. Is it true? So now, I'm going back inside. I'm back in the store. I'm 17 years old, standing by the counter. I can see the videos in front of me. I can see my boss walking by, and I see his expression. Is it true that he doesn't think I'm doing my job well enough? Yes. That is definitely my experience. Second question. Can you absolutely know that it's true? I look again. I'm standing by the counter. He's walking by. I see his expression. Can I absolutely know that it's true? Yes. That's how I experience it. I can't actually know, of course. We're talking about another person's state of mind here, and clearly I can never know anything about that with any certainty. But the purpose of this question isn't to start a philosophical debate. It's an invitation to sit in my experience. And the truth is, I do feel completely certain that this is how things stand. And so my answer remains a yes. Question three. How do you react? What happens when you believe the thought that he doesn't think you're doing your job well enough? And again, the question relates to that particular moment, just as I see his expression. How do I react? What happens in that moment when I believe the thought, he doesn't think I'm doing my job well enough? My stomach clenches. My whole body tenses, and a hot wave of discomfort rushes through me. My pulse quickens. My face burns. I feel guilty. I instantly begin racking my brain for what I did wrong. I think I shouldn't have all the videos lying in a mess on the counter. I see images of his disapproving expression. I see a short film of him sitting in a meeting and discussing my inadequacy with the store manager. I see the manager calling me into a meeting to fire me. I see images of the other employees talking behind my back. I see the manager complaining about me to the ones she's close to. I cringe even more. I feel inept and small. I see images from my past when I had the same feelings. Situations from school, situations from Boy Scout, situations from swimming. I try to get away from the feeling. I attack my boss in my mind. I accuse him of being a bad boss. I shift into victim mode. This is so hard for me. Nobody considers my feelings. Everybody's always out to get me. Nobody thinks I'm good enough. I feel sorry for myself. Again, I see images from previous situations where I felt like this. I find confirmation in those past experiences that I'm completely alone and that it's hard. My mood shifts to miserable. My body feels heavy. Colors pale around me. The time until my shift ends seems infinitely long. I'd rather be anywhere else. I get irritated about my job. I get irritated at the videos in front of me. I get irritated at my boss. I get irritated at my manager. I get irritated at the employees gossiping about me. I think they are all horrible. I get angry and introverted And feel ill at ease. Everything is grey and dark. I don't feel well. I could continue this investigation for a long time. Some of the flashes I see from other situations take me to my school environment, where I find some of the same reactions towards my teachers. And there's also the relationship with my mother's new husband that comes up, and which I could look into. There is a fine balance here between going into story, traveling all over the place, and then staying in the situation and noticing that even right there, these other memories and images come up, and recognizing that the mental and emotional state I'm in at that moment is related to these other situations in other areas of my life. But for now, we'll keep it at this. And when I feel I have seen the major bulk of my reactions... I'm ready to move to question four. Who would you be without the thought that your boss thinks you're not doing your job well enough? Still, just in that moment. It takes some time to move away from the strong feeling of grievance I'm experiencing after having investigated the answer to question three. But gradually it fades, and I see myself standing by the counter as my boss walks by and I see his expression but this time I'm completely incapable of believing the thought that he doesn't think I'm doing my job well enough. So who am I without that thought? Well, I'm calm, unperturbed, I'm sorting videos, I breathe, I'm completely unaffected by the fact that my boss is walking past. I'm happy. I've got a good system with a few piles of videos on the counter, and I'm enjoying the process of moving the films around. Physically, I'm relaxed. Where previously I was completely into my boss's business, more aware of what was happening in him than in myself, now I'm at home in my own skin, and it feels solid safe, comfortable. I'm at rest in myself. I feel strong. If my boss has any feedback for me, I'm confident that he'll tell me. I feel respect for my boss, and at the same time respect for myself. I like my job. I smile. I feel open and full of confidence. The inquiry, using the four questions, is a shift into slow motion, giving us an opportunity to reconsider the validity of our interpretation of the situation. Is what we are believing really true? Could it be that it's a projection? What is actually going on in the situation? Is it difficult to park in the driveway? Is the director treating me unfairly? Can I be sure my boss thinks I'm not doing my job well enough? In a sense, the entire process of doing the work springs out of that initial question. Is it true? It's an invitation for us to take a closer look and see if the automated perception we have is as reliable as we think. Which is also why we get two steps at it. Is it true? Can you absolutely know that it's true? And please note that it's not a theoretical answer we're looking for. As I said, from a purely philosophical point of view, the answer to the second question, can you absolutely know that it's true, is of course always no. We cannot know anything with absolute certainty. But that's not the point. The intention is not for your answer to come from theory or intellectual deliberation. The intention is for you to confront yourself with this question and really check it out. And very often when we do that, we experience that, contrary to what we might know in theory, our answer is a yes. We honestly feel that we do know it's true. In which case, that's our answer. But take your time. Don't jump to conclusions. Investigate. You may surprise yourself. And then, irrespective of whether your answers are yes or no, continue with question three. How do you react? What happens when you believe that thought? Question three educates us on so many things regarding our reactions. It's astonishing how much can happen inside us in just a split second. It's like a complex network of wires or the electricity cable that crosses the Atlantic. The moment a connection is made, electricity instantly runs through the whole thing. It doesn't need time to warm up, and the current doesn't move gradually from one end to the other. The whole thing is instantly alive the moment a connection is made. It's the same with our complexes of beliefs. The moment somebody presses one of our buttons... The whole network is alive and buzzing with the current. Our exploration when we answer the questions can take some time because we are gradually moving from point to point. But in practice, it's all activated in an instant. The emotional responses, the memories of the past, the fear of where the situation will lead, our reactions to the other person, our view of ourselves, it's all triggered at the same time. But it's only when we slow things down and take the time to investigate that we realize how many different moving parts there actually are. In this situation, most of them are unconscious to us and happen without us even registering it, leading to further pain, complications, and misunderstandings. But as we become aware of them, their power over us is diminished. We see how impotent and archaic many of our responses are, and as we notice they begin to fall away. As I explained in the How the Work Works episode, another important aspect of answering question 3 and 4, how do you react when you believe that thought and who would you be without the thought, is that our nervous system is given time to experience how stressful and unpleasant it is to believe the thought and how things would be without it. And that's an important step to have taken before we continue on to the third stage of the process where we work with the turnarounds. Because it's when our unconscious mind discovers how much pain we are inflicting on ourselves when we hold on to the thought, and how much better off we would be without it, that we develop the openness necessary to find examples for the turnarounds. That's also why it's so important that we don't simply think about, but genuinely experience the stress and suffering we put ourselves through. Because it's through this concrete experience that our nervous system discovers that the strategies it used in that moment aren't as optimal as we thought they were. It might well be that it was the best we could do when we were five years old and found ourselves in the situation for the first time. But now that we are older and wiser, it's time to give our survival strategies a maintenance check and explore other options. If we delve deep into question three, how do you react, what happens when you believe that thought, moving on to question four, who would you be without the thought, can almost feel like an impossible expanse to cross. When we feel ourselves really convinced that what we are believing is true, the question who would you be without that thought can seem unanswerable at first. We have no idea who we'd be. It feels like we can't even go there. A couple of things are good to remember in that situation. First, you're not being asked to let go of the thought. As I've explained earlier, that's not possible, so no reason to try that. What you're being asked is to imagine what it would be like to be without the thought. Just for a few minutes. Who would you be in that very same situation without the thought? Nothing has changed. The others are still doing what they do. Still saying what they say, the circumstances are exactly the same. The only difference is that you no longer have that thought. Who would you be when your husband says, I don't love you anymore, if you didn't have the thought, he doesn't love me? I know it can sound absurd, but just notice how the real problem in the situation is not the words he speaks but the painful story you spin around what you think they mean. The images of a lonely future, the consequences for the children, the feelings of inadequacy and betrayal, the idea that you've been discarded in favor of another, probably younger and more beautiful, the thought of having to tell your friends and family. Who would you be in that moment if you didn't have that entire story running? You would be present, standing there, listening, seeing his pain without distortion, setting him free, trusting, maybe excited even. You thought you knew what your future held, now it's open again. And what does it even mean to say that you love or don't love somebody? What is love? Can you control it? Is it personal? Who would you be in that moment, with that man, in that room, without your story. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. These things are for you to discover, and in a moment it's your turn to try answering the four questions. Choose one of the one-liners on your worksheet. Pick one that is a real cause of stress for you, one where you feel yourself react inside every time you read it. Phrase it as a simple one-liner, remembering to only use the part after because if it's from point 1, or to include the first part of the sentence, if it's from points two, three, four, or 5. If it's from point 6, find another one. We work on the one-liners from point 6 in a slightly different way, so it's best not to tackle those yet. Then get a piece of paper and a pencil and get ready to write down your answers to the four questions. You can write keywords or whole sentences. It's up to you. Just remember to give yourself enough time to really be absorbed in the experience. It's often a good idea to close your eyes. Remember to return to the situation again and hold yourself in the specific moment you're working with as you experience your answers. It's not so much what you write down that's important. It's just a good way of structuring the process. The important thing is that you experience the answers internally. One thing it's good to bear in mind when you answer question three, how do you react, what happens when you believe that thought, is that it's about your reactions. It's not about what the other person does, or about why you react as you do. It's not, I get angry because I don't think he should act that way. After all, I'm the one who made dinner, and he should be able to understand that when you're part of a group, everybody has to help out. Where would we be if everybody just did what he did and completely ignored their responsibilities? This isn't a description of how I react. It's an argument for why it's reasonable that I react as I do and therefore just a confirmation that what I believe is correct. The word we need to look out for here is because. When we say because in answering the four questions, it usually leads to a defense or an argument. We don't need because in our answers. If we move into justification, we are no longer answering the question. What we need is to report what we experience. I get angry. I attack him. I defend my point of view. That is a description of my reaction. It's worth pointing out here that even I get angry is actually an interpretation. If we observe ourselves yet more closely, we will discover that what we call getting angry is in fact a series of physical responses. My hands tense up, my breath quickens, I feel my cheeks burn, my heart starts to pound, I want to grab him, I want to shout. We've now moved away from the generalization of the word anger and closer to concrete physical and mental reactions the way i visualize it words like anger or sorrow annoyance fear and so on are at the top of a pyramid that consists further down of various concrete physical and mental reactions the further we go towards the bottom of the pyramid the more fleshed out our observations become and the more concrete and specific are the reactions we are talking about in day-to-day life It's practical to be able to refer to the whole pyramid with a single word like anger. But when we do the work, it's good to experience more of the pyramid than just this generalized interpretation. It's important to note that we become what we call angry, but it's also good to register some of the concrete and often exhausting activities of which this concept is just the tip. Another thing that's helpful to remember is that your answers to questions 1 and 2 is it true and can you absolutely know that it's true are always either yes or no. Not no because or yes but. Just a single syllable. Yes or no. No arguments. No reasoning. No explanations. Sometimes it can be difficult to find the answer but then we just have to wait. I once had a client who took more than half an hour over question one. She didn't say anything, but there was plenty going on while she considered her answer. And that's just how it is. We can't make the process go any faster. We are witnesses. We pose the questions, then we experience what happens. It's not seek and find, it's ask and wait. And for question one and two, the answer can only be yes or no. So, your turn. Pick your one-liner, make sure it's short and simple, travel back to the situation in your mind, and when you feel you're mentally and emotionally there again, begin answering the four questions, holding yourself in the process by writing down what you find. And remember to keep returning to the situation and the one-liner every time you discover that you've traveled somewhere else. Enjoy the process. We will return to your experience in the next episode, where we will also cover the third and final step using the turnarounds. Until then, I am Ernest, and I look forward to continuing our work on this journey towards peace, clarity, and the end of suffering. The Work of Byron Katie is copyrighted by Byron Katie International. You can read more on www.thework.com. For more podcasts like this one, visit theartofbeinghuman.dk. And feel free to contact me if you have any questions or comments to this podcast. You can find my contact information at theartofbeinghuman.dk, or you can simply send an email to ernest. At kavm.dk. that is Ernest at kilo Victor Mike dk. Thank you for listening.